pray for Caitlin, or you can stick it in your Bible, and just a way to uh, remember her as we pray for her as she serves faithfully uh, on mission for the next year. So I'm um, excited about that. So now this morning, um, I want you to look with me at Revelation chapter 3. So now we transition from that. Uh, a lot to announce this morning. I got more later, right? So it's just, um, I'm having to spread them out so I can remember. Um, Revelation chapter 3 this morning, as we dive into God's Word, we are getting close to wrapping up a series uh, in the book of Revelation in the first three chapters about the seven churches of Revelation. Uh, I don't know if you knew or not before we got into this, but there were seven very real churches that were existence there in the first century that Jesus addressed through John, uh, the apostle, um, at the very beginning of Revelation. So there's, it gives us kind of the context of what was going on when this book was written. And we're calling this series In Our Midst because we see at the very beginning of the book of Revelation that Jesus reveals himself to John as the one who is standing in the midst of the churches, the one who is walking among them to encourage them, to strengthen them, and to discipline them, um, to observe them, and that reminds us that Jesus, the authoritative king is present with us at all times. And, and um, that's a good thing. And it's also a reminder for us who's in charge and who we belong to. And so what we've been doing since then is looking at each church that Jesus addresses. And we're finding out uh, that a lot of the problems that churches had in the first century, many centuries later, we still have. Right? We still deal with some of the same things um, that they dealt with, dealt with. And there's some things that you, you see with churches that are some bad things, and then we see some good things, and it's kind of a, a mishmash of that, right? And um, what we've come to realize is that there are a lot of problems in church and with churches. No church is perfect. In fact, if you're visiting with us this morning, a guest of ours, and you're perfect, it's probably not a place for you. Uh, we will mess you up. Um, you certainly don't want to get involved in our small groups or get serving in some way or attend too much because we might rub off on you. And uh, and we don't want that to happen because you, if you've already achieved that level, we're far from there not planning on uh, being able to arrive at that, this side of heaven. Um, but we are a group of imperfect people who are pursuing Christ's likeness together, right? And so, um, and, and trying to bear with one another as we do that, and, um, and, and to love one another and serve one another. But it can be discouraging sometimes if you, if you were to just read these verses about these churches and then to look at some of the things that go on in churches around us. It's really easy for us to get discouraged with church. Because bad things can happen in churches, you know, like in Thyatira where they tolerate immorality and false doctrine or in Ephesus where they don't love people well. And you go there and you don't feel loved or you don't feel like they even love Jesus or, or people fight and they bicker or they, they try to hijack Jesus' vision and mission for the church for their own vision and mission. All kinds of stuff happens in churches because we're imperfect people um, serving a perfect Lord. And so you can start wondering, is it even possible to achieve what we talked about a week or two ago? Being healthy. Because that's what Jesus wants, right? He wants us to be a healthy church. But then, lo and behold, we get to Revelation 3, verses 7 through 13, and we get a good picture of a healthy church. Not a perfect church. They had problems, I'm sure. But none so glaring that Jesus felt the need to point them out. Um, Jesus, in this passage, is going to greatly encourage this church. And we see that um, they're kind of known as the faithful church when you read these uh, passages. Uh, them, uh, them, and along with just one other church, are the only two churches to not receive any negative rebuke from Jesus, the other church, the persecuted church uh, that we looked at a few weeks ago. And so this morning, I want to encourage you because I believe Jesus wants to encourage us this morning. And, and I believe he encouraged them and motivated them with these words that we're about to read to fuel the mission um, as they went on serving him. And so I'm hoping that these words fuel our mission and help us as we seek to live faithful Christian lives and live faithfully together corporately as a church. So look with me at Revelation chapter 3, um, verses 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, 
the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and none and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. To try those who will dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. And my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this good word. Will you give us ears to hear this morning? And would you help us to learn and grow in your word and to apply it to our lives? And would you speak to our hearts this morning, encourage us and change our lives as we seek to be like Christ? And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So this letter is written to the church in Philadelphia, not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, different Philadelphia, right? In the Roman province of Asia. In the first century. And the city though. Obviously we know the name means brotherly love. And it was named for two brothers. Humanus and Italus. Uh, one of these brothers had shown great love for his brother. And they, ultimately for their brotherly love. You get the name for this city. Um, and it, how it got that name. Now one of the most interesting things about Philadelphia. Is that it was considered a missionary city. For advancing Hellenism. Or um, the Greek culture. and Greek thought. And so this was a place that kind of saw it as their mission. As a city. Uh, to advance the Greek language. And the Greek arts. And the, just the Greek culture in general. Greek thought. And um, which was a... a very big deal uh, in the first century. And so they were a city known for advancing these things. And so it's been referred to um, by Bible scholars uh, and scholars alike as a missionary city. Now, it was also a city that had experienced a terrible earthquake um, in AD 17. So we know this was written sometime, you know, 80, 90, 80, 100, kind of in that time frame. So, um, so some of the folks that experienced that, they're getting older now, but you're within that generation of folks who had experienced probably in their childhood, um, that massive earthquake. And, and many believe that they were, uh, from different writings, that they experienced the aftershocks for those earthquakes for years. And so they kind of lived in fear of the next big one, <laughs> uh, the next big earthquake um, that would take place. The city also had its name changed twice in its history, usually kind of connected to the new emperor um, that had taken over. Um, once, basically, they changed their name to something that meant the new city of Caesar. Uh, and then the last thing was uh, Flavia. And, uh, and it was also still always kind of known as Philadelphia. So they had kind of had these different names that they had been known by. So when you think about the church in Philadelphia, you think about a church that is made up of people who were part of this particular city with this particular history that had had this tragedy that kind of lived in fear had this name change thing that had this missionary mentality of advancing Greek thought and kind of so you out of that city you have a group of people that become believers many of which were Jewish um, some of which I'm sure are Gentile but who come to faith in Christ and now um, they have it as their job to be missionaries in their city to advance not Greek thought and Greek thought culture but Jesus and his kingdom agenda and so as we look at this, we see that Jesus introduces himself to this church as the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David. Quite an interesting um, 
um, in, uh, kind of um, introduction there. And when he says, I'm the Holy One, this is a direct reference to him being God. Um, as one person put it, you and I, if you're a believer in Christ today, God calls you holy. But you're only holy because you've been made holy. None of us are holy, separate, pure, perfect, set apart, bind for God, for by ourselves. We ha- that has to happen. We have to be set apart by God, for God, made holy, right? But Jesus just is holy. God just is holy. He is the Holy One, so He is proclaiming deity here, okay? And then he says, I am the true one. I am the reliable one. I am the one you can trust. I am the one you can count on. I am, what, the way, the truth, and the life. And then he uses that phrase, I have the key of David. And I open and none shall shut. Now, this is a messianic claim and a reference to Isaiah 22, 22 is where you can find that. Um, and basically, the one who held the key of David, it was a symbol of access to the king and authority in the king's name. You kind of might say he could carry out and make decisions and do things that carried with it the weight of the king. And he also had, uh, as one commentator said, he had privileged access to the king. And so Jesus is saying, I have the key of David. If you go back and read in Isaiah 22, there was one particular individual who had... Who, has had the key of David, who was an unworthy individual, and God takes that key and he gives it to another guy, I think his name was Elikim, and he's not able to bear the weight of holding that, and because of the problems that Israel had and their own sins and their own issues, and so only the Messiah, only the anointed one, only the true king, ultimately, of God's people would be able to really hold on to that and manage that access to God and provide actual access to God, but also carry the true weight of the king, not just a earthly king, but the king of kings. And that is Jesus, who is the king of kings. And so Jesus, by saying all this, he's making a messianic reference, and it points to two things. I have authority, and therefore, I'm the only one that can give you access to God. Access to God comes through me because I have the authority to provide it because I am the king. And I hold the messianic key. I hold the key of David. And so he is pointing here to his authority. So the first observation in the text, I've got four for you this morning. The first one is, as we strive to live to be a faithful church as a North Park family, and faithful believers, if you're a believer in Christ this morning, and we think about that theme of faithfulness as we see as we read through this, this faithful church, the first thing we need to remember is that Jesus is our chief authority. Jesus is our chief authority. We, li- we live in a world with a bunch of true authorities and a bunch of wannabe authorities in our life. You know, we've, you've got a boss or you've got the government, different people that have served various realms of authority right in our life. And then there's want-to-be authorities, people that want to tell us how to live our life and speak into our life and tell us, right and wrong, whether it's really right and wrong or not. And, and sometimes you see this in culture when one group has one view, another group has another view. And so what the one group on one side of the culture or this side of the culture wants to do, and people in both parties can be guilty of this, is they try to just force their views on the other side, right? And bully them over and kind of play king in their life, kind of play authority in their life. But what we know as believers is that there's only one true high supreme authority in our life, and it's King Jesus. And so all the other authorities in our life get arranged underneath him. And so, yeah, we serve the government or whatever authority that might might be representative in our life, but Jesus is the chief authority. And that's a reminder for us. It was a reminder to this church that Jesus was the authority in their life, and he was the one that gave them access to God. And so then he tells them, I know your works. He begins to evaluate them. I've set before you an open door that no one's able to shut. I know that you have but little power, he says, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, 
He says, I am the one that holds the king of David that opens and none shall shut, who shuts and none shall open. That authoritative deal, right? And access to God, all that. And then he says, I've set before you an open door. So it's getting very interesting here. The one who opens and closes has given an open door to Philadelphia. Now, what is this open door? And you can go buy a bunch of commentaries. You can read them and find out all these different things that maybe the, this open door can be. And you can probably find three or four different opinions by three or four good people. And um, I believe it's chiefly in this text a reference to heaven, salvation, the messianic kingdom, and all that comes with it. Okay. reason for that is if you go down to Revelation 4.1... Right after he addresses Laodicea, which we're going to see the next church we're going to look at, he says, after this I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven, right? And so the closest thing in the text we've got to look at is that doorway to heaven and to, I believe, the messianic kingdom that is to come, all that sort of stuff, access to God, salvation. I believe that's the primary thing that he's talking about. Now, some believe that the Jews in this particular city had barred the Jewish Christians from the synagogue. Once they had accepted Christ and placed faith in Him as Messiah, they'd say, well, you're no longer really Jews. We're the real Jews. We're the real people of God. You have now rejected God because you have accepted an imposter as the Messiah. And so they have barred them, some believe, from the synagogue where they couldn't come in. And so, in a sense, you have Jesus maybe kind of saying to these folks, look, you've been barred from this assembly, but you need to know that I have set an open door before you. I have given you access to the Father. I've given you have an open door that no one can shut. They might shut the door on the synagogue, but they can't shut you out of heaven. They can't shut you out of my kingdom. They can't shut you out of the salvation that I've provided for you. Now, some believe that this is actually a reference to ministry opportunities, that because this church had been faithful, Jesus was going to provide them more and more ministry opportunities. I don't think that's the primary reason, but I do think it's implicit, okay, in the text. Paul used a lot of times the idea of ministry opportunities. Um, he would use the term open doors to talk about it in his writings. 1 Corinthians 16, 9. Paul writes, For a wide door of effective service, ser- service has opened for me. And there are many adversaries. Colossians 4, 3-4. Paul writes, At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ and on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So Paul would use this term open door to talk about ministry opportunities, to share the gospel, to serve people. So I believe what you have here is this is implicit because this is a missionary city. You've got to remember, it's in their DNA to serve Greek culture by advancing the Greek cause. And now they are believers. And anybody who understands what has been provided for them in Christ, the open door that we have now to heaven, to the kingdom of Christ, the salvation and all that comes with that. Because Jesus, right, he says, I am the door. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And he says, I am the door. And so Jesus, we know when we walk through Christ by faith, we have a whole new world open to us, of salvation and redemption, a future home in heaven, a, a hope laid up for us. All that sort of stuff is ours. And anybody that truly understands that also knows that that comes with it a responsibility to then go and expand Christ's kingdom, advance Christ's kingdom by inviting other people and helping them to understand there's an open door. It, it, it's, it would have been just kind of implicit to them as, as they're kind of natural missionaries that they advance their worldview and now their worldview is to be shaped by Jesus. And I believe that this kind of thing kind of just kind of goes together. And Jesus looks at him and he says, I know that you've had but little power. But you, right, you, but you stuck to my word. You've kept the faith. You haven't denied my name. And I think when he says little power, he's probably talking about size or like worldly influence. You know, they didn't have maybe a lot of movers and shakers in the church. 
And it wasn't a mega church, obviously. But they had kept the word, not denied the name of Christ. They had stayed centered on Christ and faithful to Him. And that's what Jesus was evaluating. Their faithfulness to Him. And that brings us to our second observation. Not only do we need to remember that Jesus is our King if we want to remain faithful, but as a faithful church and faithful believers, we need to remember the privilege and responsibility of the open door. It is We have the privilege that as believers in Christ, He has set before us an open door to the kingdom of Christ, the world of salvation, redemption, and our future hope in Christ. And many times, though, you need to understand that because you are in Christ and a follower of Christ, some doors in this world will be closed to you even though the door that really counts is open and can't be shut. And so many times when you begin to follow Christ, other doors may close. And that's what possibly had happened to this church, very likely, in the door to the synagogue and the way they were treated there. We've seen in other situations as we've journeyed through this that some people, um, because of their faith, were, were being pushed out of uh, basically their, their first century labor unions, Right? Many times, when someone expresses faith in Christ and begins to live that out, there can be repercussions. You may not get that job. You may suffer financially at some point. Jesus hasn't promised us that, that we won't suffer. So we need to know that sometimes doors get closed. Relationships get ended. Sometimes those things happen, not because we want them to. They just do. And sometimes it's the cost of following Christ. But what we need to understand is... We've got this privilege that while some doors get closed to us, the door that counts has been opened to us. And that comes with a responsibility. A responsibility as those who are in the kingdom, we should look for open doors to advance the kingdom. To help people trust and follow Christ. As people saved by grace, we know that the grace of God is what has saved us, right? And He has set before us this open door to the kingdom. And so we want all people to have this same grace and to experience the same grace. We didn't open that door. Right? Christ set that door before us, not us. And so we want other people to experience the same grace we have. And as a church and as individuals, open doors should be our prayer. And stewarding them is our responsibility. To leverage our lives, corporately and as individuals, to walk through open doors of ministry service to help people find the real open door. And our role as churches and believers needs to always be and always needs to be about remembering that more than worldly influence, God cares about gospel faithfulness. He looks at this church, and the fact is they are leveraging their opportunities. He says, you've, you've not denied my name. You've kept my word. So Christ's word and Christ's name and the gospel, it, it, was, it was on their lips. It was on their hearts. They were sticking to the stuff, right? They were living out their faith. And Jesus, he doesn't, he doesn't say, hey, you don't, you don't have a lot of power and I'm disappointed. He says, you, don't have, you have a little power, but you've done what really matters, right? Because gospel faithfulness is greater than worldly power and worldly influence. And that's true in your personal life as well. It's not about the size of your bank account or your zip code. or the, And as a, corporately as a church, it's not about the size of a building or a budget. Jesus is not concerned with our worldly power. He's concerned with us faithfully keeping His Word and proclaiming His name. To be faithful. To look and pray for opportunities. And then be faithful to Him. You know, Jesus said, To whom much is given, much is expected. How much has been given to a people who have a doorway open to them to the kingdom of Christ? Jesus said it. Much is given, much is expected. And that's, isn't that just in our DNA personally anyway? Don't we just kind of think that, if, you know, if, if, I, if I told you, if you found out one of your friends gave $10 million away last year to charity, you would probably think that was really impressive. If you've got friends that can do that, right? But then if you found out that was only 1% of their income, it would be less impressive. 
Right? That's what happens when you see it on TV and they start revealing things like presidential candidates and what they gave to charity. People aren't really concerned with the dollar amount. They're more concerned with the percentage. Because we think just naturally, well, to whom much is given, much is expected. We expect differently based on certain things. If I was to come in here this morning and I'd, you know, this fall sometime and say, hey, I was out last week because I got the opportunity. You might have noticed on TV I was playing quarterback for the Miami Dolphins through... <laughs> Some of you probably be like, well, and they need somebody, you know, maybe maybe the pastor can do it. Um, but I was to come back and say, I threw three touchdowns, led us on a game-winning drive, but I've retired. You have not. You know, you, you know, I was lying, right? Um, but if we hear the same story about Peyton Manning, it's traded to the Dolphins, and he does that. We're not shocked or surprised by that. We think, well, that's what he gets paid to do. Expectations different, right? Same thing with some of you and your kids in school. Some of you, you had kids you were disappointed if they didn't make an A. Some of you have a pizza party if they made a C, right? <laughs> different levels of expectation. Might be some kids in the same family. You know, I get it. I saw an article the other day. That the title of it was, Most of Our Kids Are Average. So, um, <laughs> but anyway, average right here. Different levels of expectation. Based on the circumstances, the situation, all that kind of stuff. We know that. Christ looks at us and he has provided for us immensely. He's given us himself. He's given us his spirit. He's opened to us the door to the kingdom of heaven. And I think he expects something out of us. I think he expects something out of us. I think he expects us to be faithful, to leverage our lives and our opportunities, to maximize every single thing for the cause of advancing the gospel. I think he expects it. I think he demands it. And that's our responsibility. To remember the privilege and responsibility of the open door God has given us. Now, this church had some circumstances. You see there in verse 9. He talks about this synagogue of Satan. That's a term we've seen earlier in, 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 in this series. Who's, people who say they are Jews and they're not, but they lie. And this is the Jews who had been persecuting them. Maybe it was the assembly thing that we talked about, barring them. Maybe it was other things. Maybe it was slandering them like we saw at another church. But he, they're persecuting them. And he's not saying they're not Jews because they're not ethnic Jews. He's saying, he's saying they claim to know God and they're proven by the fact that they're rejecting his son and rejecting his people that they don't. And they're actually promoting Satan's agenda of slander, this particular group, of slandering and coming against God's people instead of receiving the Messiah and, and, it, and advancing the kingdom of Christ. Instead, they're actually slandering the kingdom of Christ and they're hurting people and they're, and they're closing people out and they're behaving in a way this particular group was that, was that was not in line of what it should look like to be one of God's people. And we know that that's something that's always true, by the way. There's always going to be phonies. There's always going to be people that claim to know God that don't. There's always going to be people that claim to be advancing God's agenda that are advancing their own. There's always going to be people in any assembly, whether it's the ch- in nowadays, it's the church who claim to have a relationship with God, but that do not. Now, Jesus looks at them and he says, this particular group of people, I'm going to make them bow down at your feet. Right? Now, this is a reference of imagery from Isaiah again. 45, 14, 49, 23, and 60, verse 14. Speaks to a day when unbelieving Gentiles would bow before believing Jews, right? And many believe it's the believing remnant of Jews at the end times. And the unbelieving Gentiles will come bow before them. It's not a picture of worship. But here, it's kind of, it's turned, right? It's a group of Jews. Jesus is saying they're going to bow before this church. And the imagery here, I think, chiefly kind of speaks to the fact of this, that there's coming a day, Jesus says, where they're going to look and they're going to know the church is my people, that I am the Messiah. You were right. 
And they're not going to bow at your feet. It's not a picture of worship. It's a picture of submission. And it might be that day when every knee and every tongue bows before Jesus and confesses before Jesus that he is Lord. But at some point, everybody that's going to come, and by the way, that comes to faith in Christ, will understand and know that Jesus is Lord and the church is his people. That's, just, that's, just, that's what happens when you come to faith in Christ, Jew or Gentile. And there's coming a day where everybody's going to understand that. But notice the big thing here is that Jesus wants them to know, I'm going to let them know that I've loved you. Jesus loves the church. And any enemy that comes against the church, Jesus wants us to know there's going to come a day when they're going to know that you're my loved people. Yeah, in this world, you might not have a lot of power. But you're my loved people. One day everybody's going to know it. In verse 10, Jesus says, Because you have kept my word, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming. Now, this church has been faithful to obey the word, even in difficult times. And Jesus says, I'll keep you from the most difficult time yet to come. Now, Jesus seems to be pointing in this text here to a worldwide trial that hasn't even been experienced yet. The term, those who dwell on the earth that you see there, is used throughout Revelation to refer to kind of rebellious, sinful people that populate the earth. And it seems here, since Jesus follows that up with, I am coming soon, that he is referring to a time of increased tribulation on the earth before the second coming, right? We talk about the great tribulation and things of that nature. All kinds of viewpoints and all that. I get that. Now, there's a play on words in the Greek. Jesus says, because you have kept, I will keep. It shows up in our language because of the way the English uh, ESV that we use translates it. But it's in the Greek. It's the same Greek word. Because you have kept, I'll keep. But they have two different meanings. One means because you've obeyed, I will protect, preserve, whatever you want to, you know, could be translated a lot of different ways. He says, I'm going to protect you because you have obeyed my word. You have kept, I will keep, right? So he uses a word that sounds the same that can mean two different ways, basically showing his faithfulness to them because they have been faithful to him. Now, the question comes, what does Jesus mean by that? Because... Everybody has different opinions on this. Because there's a few different ways that Jesus could protect this particular church. Now, this church, by the way, we know did not go through any kind of great tribulation, worldwide tribulation, because they're all dead. Um, the, the exact group of people that he was talking to at this particular moment in time have all passed away. So they, they were, you know, kept from it that way. But that's also a promise here, I believe, for Jesus' church in general. And so it can be translated in the Greek a couple of different ways. And so some people believe that the way Jesus is going to protect his people in the midst of this worldwide tribulation is what we call a rapture that will happen before the second coming when Jesus comes to the earth where he'll just remove them, right, and protect them that way. And the Greek can mean that. But the Greek can also mean that Jesus will sovereignly protect and preserve even in the midst of this great tribulation. And that's why you hear different viewpoints. Some people say, well, I believe we're going to be here for this tribulation, the church. Some people say, I believe the church is going to be removed. And you hear these different viewpoints. And, and, you, know, and you can debate that all day long. But here's the truth. This particular scripture is not going to solve that problem for you. Because it can be translated. It can mean both things. Jesus' main idea here, I believe, is to sell one big point. I'm going to take care of my church. And so you might be one that says, well, I believe, man, we're, you know, we're going to be raptured and we're going to get out. And you might be one over here that says, well, I believe we're going to be here for it, but Jesus is going to preserve us and protect us and all that kind of stuff. Well, that's great. We can all agree that Jesus is going to take care of us one way or another. And we know that even when the church goes through suffering and church goes through pain and church goes through difficulty as the church is experiencing all over the world. And we've seen that with ISIS, with believers having their heads chopped off. We know that there's difficulty and pain in this world right now. And Jesus still preserves and protects his people. And when Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life, he meant it. 
And there is not one child of God that has perished, nor that ever will, no matter what happens on this earth. So we don't live with fear. We live with expectation. And we look for and we long for the return of Christ and for this world to be made right and ultimately for the second coming when He does come and set up the new heavens and the new earth and all that kind of good stuff and the millennial reign, all that good revelation stuff that you get into after you get past chapter 3. We look for and we long for that day, but we know until that day, Jesus is going to take care of us. Jesus looks out for His people. That's why He says, I'm coming soon. Hold fast so that no one may seize your crown. Right? He says, I'm the first century Christians, they, they lived in expectation that Jesus was coming back. Now, he didn't come back in their lifetime. But now think about it. In the, grand, you, the Bible teaches, in the Bible, you see that we're living in the last days. They use that terminology. Well, that's, since Jesus has ascended into heaven, it's the last days. So from the Apostle Paul all the way to me and you today is the last days. It's after Christ has ascended. It's the last thing that needed to happen, right? The next thing we're looking for is the end times. And so, and, and Jesus coming back. And so, the point here is this. Jesus says, I'm coming soon, and in the grand scheme of things, in this, for the sake of eternity matters, we know <laughs> a day with the Lord is as a thousand years, right? We know if Jesus doesn't come back for another thousand years, in the grand scheme of things with eternity, that's still really, really soon from, in that, from that perspective. But what we need to understand and what is that Jesus is telling these people that they need to hold to His Word. That means to stay firmly committed to His Word as they await on His arrival. And the idea is this, and this is our third observation. We need to hold fast to Christ and His Word knowing that Christ holds fast to us. See, he, told, he tells them, hold fast, hold fast, hold fast. But before he did all that, he's telling them, man, I'm telling you, your enemies are going to bow at your feet. I'm telling you, I'm going to protect you. I'm telling you, I'm looking out for you. He's showing his commitment to them. And he says, now you hold fast to what you have. You hold fast. You stay true to your salvation and to who you are in Christ. You, we need to live. He don't want us to live in fear. He wants us to know he's got our back. He's got us. He's with us. He's protecting us no matter what comes our way. So we can, with just kind of wild abandonment, just live in obedience without looking over our shoulder all the time. You know, sometimes I like to take Eden and pick her up and hold her over my head. And that's, she loves that, right? She just, that's, now Eden's my little, you know, our little eight-month-old, almost eight months. And we hold her up and she just laughs and giggles and all that kind of stuff. I was thinking the other day, I thought, you know, I can't imagine, you know, I'm, I'm roughly, and I even kind of measured this, I'm about two and a half times taller than her. You'd think it would be more than that, but it's really not. Two and a half times taller than her. Now, I'm about six feet tall. So I was thinking, what would it be like if a 15-foot tall man picked me up, extended his arms and held me in the air? So I'm about 22 feet in the air at this point, and laughed at me, you know, blew on my stomach, you know, whatever. You know, I would be terrified, you know. <laughs> You know, there, there's fans going around, you know, like, you know, for her, you know. I can't imagine these huge blades going around. He's, you know, I would be, she loves it. She laughs and has this big time and enjoys it. And I would, man, I would, it would be bad. It would just not be good. You, you would, you know, I would probably just die right there of a heart attack at 35. Now, here's the thing. The reason she's not terrified is because there is nothing that has entered her mind to think that she can't trust me. And that there's anything but a good time to be had when I pick her up and hold her over my head. She knows I've got her, and it hasn't even entered her mind that she might fall. Now, she's going to get a little older. At some point, it's going to start entering her mind because she's going to know Daddy makes mistakes. <laughs> Cannon's getting there, right? She's going she's, she's, she's to get there, too. And I think the idea behind this is this. 
We need to have that kind of confidence that Jesus has got us, that Jesus is going to protect us, that Jesus was looking out for us, and that Jesus is committed to us. And when we have that security, right? He tells them, they're going to know I've loved you. When we have that kind of security of his love and his protection for us, it frees us up just like it frees her up to laugh and have a good time. It frees us up to obey. It frees us up to live in Christ and, and to not worry so much about the what's it going to cost me if I obey. Because we have this freedom to know it's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. He's got me. Now, this church, he transitions and begins to talk about their future. He says, the one who conquers. And we see that over and over again in Revelation. That's a term for the believer. The one who conquers, I'm going to make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from God out of heaven, and my own new name. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He's laying out promises to them. A pillar in the temple of God. Never leaving the temple of God. The name of God written on you. The name of the city of God as well. Jesus' new name. I mean, name, 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 all this kind of stuff. Remember the history of the city. It's where it comes into play. This is a city that had experienced a massive earthquake in AD 17 and aftershocks thereafter. And Jesus paints one of the most secure foundational pictures. He says, I'm going to make you a pillar in the temple of my God. It's a symbol of security. One author even noted it's a symbol of honor, right? Now, I'm going to make you a... He doesn't mean I'm going to literally turn you into a little pillar and stick... No, he's saying, listen, you're going to securely, eternally dwell in the presence of God. Nobody's going to bar you. Nobody's going to kick you out. No earthquake's going to terrify you. You're a picture of absolute security. Remember, this is also a city that's had its name changed a few times every time... Some, you know, something came up that, oh, it might be in our favor to change our name this. Let's honor this new pagan emperor with this. And Jesus says, I'm going to write God's name on you. I'm going to give you my name, my new name. It, it, he's speaking to relationship, intimate relationship. He's letting them know, you're going to know me as I know you in a unique and special way. Jesus loves his church and he loves his people. He loves us corporately and he loves us individually. He says, I'm going to give you my name. I'm going to write names, God's name on you. And I'm going to make you a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, right? The new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven, right? This picture that he's pointing here of the new heavens and the new earth. And he's saying, that's going to be your zip code. Spiritually, it's already there. And one day, physically, it's going to be there. Paige Patterson, Southern Baptist leader who wrote a New American Commentary on Revelation, says this. They will receive God's name as their possession the new Jerusalem as their citizenship, and the new name of the Lord, a reference to unique relationships sustained with the Lord. That's that's the future that he's pointing out for them here. God's name is their possession, the new Jerusalem as their citizenship, and the Lord's name identifying them as a unique relationship with God himself. And that brings us to our fourth observation. We need to remember that if we're going to continue to hold and to be faithful as a church and as believers, that Jesus promises security, honor, and acceptance in a world full of rejection and uncertainty. These people knew what it was like to live in an uncertain world. You know, it was actually stated that some people believe that they tended to live outside the city in the farmlands and stuff because ever since the earthquakes, people just tended to migrate that way because they were kind of terrified to live in the city. 
They knew what it was like to live in uncertainty. They knew what it was like to experience rejection. They were experiencing that from this synagogue of Satan that Jesus talks about. And he promises them what? Security. He promises them acceptance. He promises them honor. He promises them all these things. Because that's what Jesus promises to his church. Even though in this world we experience uncertainty. In this world we experience rejection. We know that in Christ we have security. And we have acceptance. We have these things. Jesus stakes his name, his claim on every Christ follower. Every Christ follower. And gives us these promises. But there's coming a day when your zip code now won't be your zip code then. And we need to remember that as believers, we're already there. Right? These promises motivate us in this life because we know that we're exiles, we're aliens, we're strangers, we're passing through this world. We're here with a mission. We're missionaries traveling through. We're not here to just get comfortable and live fat and happy. We're here to advance the kingdom because we're looking forward to one day when Christ is coming to set up a new heaven and a new earth and we want it to be populated with friends and family and people that have come to faith in Christ. We don't want them on the outside looking in. Ultimately, we need to learn that God's acceptance is ultimately what really matters. In a world that rejects many times, in a world where many times you experience rejection by a loved one, right? By a supposed friend, by the culture at large, we need to remember what ultimately matters is, has God accepted you? And what we need to know is God only accepts us when we come through Jesus. Jesus makes us in to who God wants us to be. Jesus comes and He covers our sin and He gives us His righteousness so that we can be accepted and received by God. We're loved by God, but if we're going to spend eternity in God's presence, if we're going to be pillars in His temple and live in His presence and have His name on us, that only happens when you come to God through Jesus. The door who opens the door to the kingdom of heaven. The great news for Philadelphia and the great news for us and for you personally and for me is that Jesus, the one who said he's holy and the one who said he's true, the one who said he holds the key of David and opens and none shall shut and shut shall and none shall open, the one with all authority has come to this fragile and uncertain and broken world and he's walked in our shoes, he's taken on human flesh, he's experienced rejection of the chiefest kind, rejected by the world and even scorned by his father for our sakes on the cross, endured God's wrath for us, rejected for us, suffering for us, dying for us, so that we can be accepted. Enduring the greatest tribulation, when the wrath of the Father came down on Him at the cross, so that you and I can be preserved, protected, delivered, saved, whatever, from the greatest wrath that's ever to come, when God pours His wrath out on a sinful world. He conquered sin, death, and hell, so that we could be the conquerors that He talks about in Revelation. We conquer through Him. That's the good news of the gospel, is that Jesus makes our faithfulness possible. You can live faithfully before God, because the faithful one came and made it possible. Because he lived faithfully first. He lived faithfully first. He, he lived what you couldn't live. Me and you couldn't live faithfully for God. So Jesus came and He lived faithfully for us and then paid our sin debt on the cross. And now when we come to Him by faith, God changes our heart and give, changes our heart and gives us His Holy Spirit so that we can live faithfully. So that we can live like He's telling us to live here. So we can hold fast to His work 
to his word and advance his work here on this earth. So two things. Today, if you never have, I want to encourage you, first of all, to repent of your sin and come to Jesus by faith. If you don't know Christ, if you're not absolutely certain that you've been rescued and saved from your sin and from God's wrath, I encourage you, even right where you sit, to just run in your heart to God, to repent of your sin, turn from it. It's what it means. It's a good word. Change your thinking. Change your mind. And say, you know what? I don't want to be in charge anymore. I don't want to go down this path anymore. I want to pursue Christ and come to God by faith, embracing Jesus as Lord and Savior. If you're here today and you're a believer, I want you to remember that as a child of God, the call for us is to live faithfully, our lives centered on Jesus and not on ourselves. And it helps us to do that if we'll remember that Jesus is our chief authority. That if we'll remember the open door that has been set before us is not just a privilege, it bears a responsibility of walking through open doors to minister to others and advance the gospel. That we need to strive to hold fast to God's word, knowing with confidence that Christ is holding on to us. And we need to cling to his promises of security and acceptance because we know in this world we're going to experience rejection and uncertainty. These are promises that can help us as we strive to live faithfully. Let's pray.